Thanks for joining us for today's message. We are always so encouraged to hear how God is working through this ministry to change lives. If you have a story to share about how God has worked in your life, then let us know by sending us an email to mystory@timberlakechurch.com. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so by giving online at timberlakechurch.com give. Enjoy the message. As a child, she built a city out of blocks. Today, over 600,000 people live and work there. She can win a game of Connect Four in three moves. She once had an awkward moment just to see how it felt. The Aztec calendar has her Cinco de Mayo party chiseled in. She is Danielle Strickland. Well, good morning. Finally, someone got my bio right. Just joking, mockery is my love language, so we're gonna be fine. Uh, Listen, what a beautiful place you live in and what an honor it is to be with you at the church and also in this incredible Pacific Northwest. I spent many years in Vancouver uh, many years ago, so I kind of feel almost a little bit like, oh yeah, I recognize the smell of earth. I remember now what beauty looks like in real life, and uh, it's a great joy to be with you. Uh, I get to talk about Jesus. That's kind of one of the things I get to do, and I love it because I am on this like lifelong discovery of uh, who Jesus is and how Jesus works. And uh, this is amazing. Jesus happens to be one of the most amazing people in history, as well as like the personification of God. So uh, God on the earth. So that's kind of been a really exciting lifelong um, thing. And the way that Jesus sees things everything and everyone is unique. He was unlike anybody else in his ability to see. Now, uh, many years ago, I was in uh, Edmonton, Alberta. It's known for its freezing coldness and winter. And I had a friend, a very good friend of mine, who's like an avid skier. Now, because I'm Canadian, I can ski. I call myself a survivor skier, which means that I can survive skiing, but if you were to ski with me, you might not survive me skiing, okay? So I don't have that many skills, but enough. And finally, I relented to Jenny, my friend, and I said, okay, if you lend me the equipment, because like, I can't afford it, you lend me the equipment and I'll go skiing with you. So she did, and we went up uh, skiing at night. And I remember going up the ski uh, lift, and I'm on the chairlift, and I look up, and that's when I see it. I see the most incredible moon I've ever seen in my life. I kid you not, full bright red, like crimson red. Like I just remember fear striking my heart going like, the apocalypse is upon us. Like the world must be ending. I remember saying to Jenny, like, look at the moon. That is like the most like amazing moon I've ever seen. And I look over at Jenny and Jenny just looks at me and goes, yeah, it's okay. And I'm like, what? I'm outraged. We go down the hill again, and we're up on the chairlift again, and I look again, and I'm like, Jenny, I just, I don't think you're really quite getting it. Like, literally, this is the best moon I've ever seen in my life. And she looks up. She goes, it's full. It's a nice night. It's a beautiful moon. I'm like, thank you. 
And we go up again and again. I'm trying to keep it down because I feel like I'm bothering her, you know, and I'm going on and on. I'm ranting about it. Like, I just got like, trying to keep it in. But on the last run of the night, I was like, I cannot. I just was like, look at that man. I was just like going on and on. Like, it's the best mood I've ever seen. And that's when Jenny turns to me and she goes, oh, she said, you do know those are rose-tinted goggles, right? And I, I mean, my first reaction was just like, could I get those goggles like imprinted into my eyes so like this is the way I see the world all the time? Because it's beautiful, man. Like this is the best way to see the world through rose-tinted goggles. But Jesus literally had something like that on his eyes all the time when he was around planet Earth. He saw everything different. Every social context he saw differently. Every person he saw differently. I mean, there are so many examples of this, but like Jesus, uh, you know, when they come across a, a blind beggar and the disciples are trying to figure out why is this guy born blind, that all they see is his blindness. And they say to Jesus, like, who's responsible for this? Like, who sinned? Did he sin or did his parents sin? Because suffering, people who suffer must have sinned. They kind of somehow deserve it. Like, this is how they saw the world. And Jesus, when he sees the blind guy he doesn't see sin he doesn't even see suffering he sees opportunity he sees glory he sees potential he sees sacredness he says whoa it's for the glory of god this is for the glory of god people are like what i mean society saw women for example they looked at women and they saw oh liability they saw like terrible credibility they saw like scandal perhaps they saw sexualization whatever it was jesus looked at women and saw huh disciples, leaders, apostles, possibilities of changing the world. I mean, great first witnesses of the greatest act in all of history. You know, like Jesus just saw things differently. I mean, when they went to a funeral, people saw grief and sorrow and even had pity. Jesus saw party, like resurrection, like possibilities, like future, hope renewal i mean who is this guy and how does he see the world this way and when jesus invited the disciples to follow him and to be like him in the world one of the ways that he did that was he said i want you to repent and believe the good news now repent is this like really heavy religious word actually to hear it you know you've got to repent sounds like you're being judged right from the start it sounds like you just kind of want to like pop somebody back who says it, you know? Like, because repentance has this, like, loaded kind of religiosity to it. And uh, traditionally, what, the reason that is is because repentance has sort of been this, like, uh, sorrow. Like, you should feel sorry for every bad thing that you've ever done. Like, it's this sort of moral inventory of sorts that's excruciatingly painful. But the actual word for repentance comes from a Greek word called metanoia. And metanoia doesn't mean feeling sorry for what you've done wrong. Metanoia means changing your whole perspective. It means changing your mind. It means seeing things differently than you ever have before. It means a renewal of the way that you see yourself and God and the world. It's absolutely amazing. So Jesus invites the disciples to change the way they see everyone and everything. And that if they could figure out how to do that, it would change everything else. 
This is uh, one of the most exciting things. I, I picked this Acts 3 passage because in Acts chapter 3, the disciples, this is like after Jesus has died, it's after Jesus is resurrected, and it's after Jesus has ascended. And so he's given the disciples this mandate. He says, like, go out into all the world and do what I did, basically. Like, just do what I did. See what I see. Like, begin to participate in this incredible thing that I've started, you know, this revolution of love, this revolution of beauty, this revolution of truth. And so the disciples start to do this. And what I love about this specific passage of scripture is that the disciples are not doing some like crazy outlandish thing. They just are on their way to church. That's it. They're just on their way to church. They're just on their way to their own thing. They do, they, they do this every Saturday, I think that was. They do this every time. They just go to church. It's kind of one of the rhythms. And on their way in their normal life, they see they see a beggar who is begging, at, what the scripture says, at the gate beautiful outside of the temple. So they're not quite at the church yet, but on their way there, they see. Now, if you read the passage of scripture, what's really interesting is you should just count how many times that scripture uses the words look, see, gaze, intently like it just goes on and on and on like a kid in kindergarten like learning to use the word see if you circle it every single time in other words in acts chapter 3 something's going on in that story that's helping us understand that one of the radical ways the disciples are going to impact the world is by changing the way that they see not just what they do, not just where they go, they're carrying on in some of those things very traditionally, but the way they see has changed. So they see this blind man begging at the gate, beautiful. And, uh, you know, I've worked with marginalized people my whole life. I've, I've, I've been working in the Salvation Army for 23 years and uh, working with homeless people and folks struggling through addiction and women trying to get out of human trafficking. So uh, this kind of, uh, this, the thing that suffers when people live in the margins of a society, one of the great areas where they suffer is not just in the poverty you know, it's not just in, in sort of some of the realities of having to live in those places and fight for those things. It's actually the invisibility of their condition that is most impacting to them. Homeless people will tell you, if you listen, that the biggest sting of homelessness is not so much not having a place. It's feeling invisible. Indeed, sometimes being invisible for days and days and years and years of no one even knowing their name, of no one even making eye contact, nobody really seeing them for who they really are. It, one of the things that Jesus does, and the disciples do in this passage, they're catching on to the ways of Jesus because Jesus has this ability to see past external barriers to see past sort of these things that we present, so social economics, or gender, or race, or background, or language, or any other background. They're like barriers of social connection. Jesus is able to see past external barriers. And he can do this not just with, uh, you know, the lower enchilade of social barriers, things like the stigma of beggars or homeless people. He also does this on the higher end of social barriers, like with authority and rulers and religious leaders. We all have places where we're hiding. Um, I remember this uh, occurring to me. I was on a plane, and I was headed to uh, a conference to speak. 
And uh, it was one of those moments, I don't know if you ever have this when you travel, where I went up to the gate just in time for the flight, but the plane was already backing out, and it was too late. It kind of like everything goes slow-mo, and you're just like, no, I missed my plane. And I had to wait four hours for the next flight out, and I had to call a conference and say, I'm so sorry, I'm going to be late, and all these sort of arrangements. Finally, I get on this uh, plane for this conference and I'm tired and I'm a little cranky because travel does that to everybody, you know, and I'm just a little bit put out about the whole circumstances. And I sit down next to this guy who looks like Tony Robbins. Like he's in a thousand dollar suit. He's got like way too white of a smile, you know, like, and he twinkles when he smiles, you know, and he's got this like perfect hair, like everything's perfect about him. And uh, I sit down next to him and he says, what do you do? And I say, uh, oh, I'm, I travel around the world telling people about Jesus, you know, because usually that'll get you some quiet time. <laughs> if ever you want quiet time, trust me, try that line. And the guy looks at me and he goes, oh, so does that make you an evangelist? And I was like, huh, that's quite a technical term, you know, like, wow, look at you, all technical. So I said to him, like, uh, why do you ask? Why do you ask that? That seems a little bit, like, specific. He said, oh, well, on my flight here, I sat next to an evangelist. I said, no way. He said, yeah. I said, how long have you been running from God? And he looks at me, you know, like I was Jesus incarnate. And with big, wide eyes, he goes, how did you know? <laughs> I said, it's a wild guess. And we got to talking. I remember it really clearly because I was telling him about Jesus, and he was sharing with me his wasabi almonds. <laughs> you ever have those, man? They're amazing. Like, they're like, change your life good, right? Wasabi almonds. I was like, this is going to be an awesome exchange, like a heavenly one. Give me some more almonds, I'll tell you more about Jesus. You know, it was like fair. Anyway, what happened was, it turns out that all of the facade of his thousand dollar suit and his whitened smile was literally just a barrier. He, his life had imploded. He had just declared bankruptcy, his fiance had left him, he was a mess. He had a long list of terrible things that he had pursued in the hopes of being happy and wealthy. And uh, he was riddled with guilt and shame. And I was able to explain to him how Jesus deals with all that stuff and sees past all of those things and into the beauty of who he is and can restore him and give him an opportunity to live a different kind of life and a beautiful life and a meaningful life. And he took Jesus up on the offer. When I was at the baggage uh, claim after the flight, he came up to me one more time and he said, Danielle, I just want to thank you one more time. And I said, no, with my bag of wasabi almonds, thank you. <laughs> he said, no, I want to thank you one more time because you saved my life tonight. And I said, oh, you know, that's so sweet, but I don't save anybody. You know, that's not my job. That's impossible. Jesus saved your life tonight. Like, this was a divine setup. If you can't see that, you know, <laughs> you're not looking. This was a divine setup. It cost me four hours out of my way at a conference speak to get on that seat beside you. This is God. He had this designed. And the guy said, no, that's not what I mean. I'm really, I'm really excited about that. But he said, literally tonight, I had everything planned to take my own life. I had nothing left to live for. And I want to thank you just one more time and remind you, like, you saved my life. Do you know what's really fascinating about that is I would not have thought by looking at that guy that his life needed saving. I wouldn't have known. 
I, I wouldn't have seen it. I, I mean, God sees it. Jesus sees it because he has kingdom lenses on. He's not confused by the disguises that we use to hide ourselves and to hide our real self. And he's not uh, confused or, or disturbed or, or, or perturbed at, at, at social disguises of poverty or, or pain or fear. He, he's, not, he's not worried about all of those things because he sees past external barriers and into the reality of what's really, really going on, into the sacredness of humanity. Now, what's really beautiful about this is that uh, it's not that God gives us worth that we don't have. It's not that kind of an exchange. And this is a really important thing for me. I've been studying the book of Exodus for, for a long time. And uh, I actually named my youngest son Moses. That's how dedicated I am to the story of Exodus. And uh, Moses was born just like beautiful. Like, I mean, just literally, he's the most joy-filled, happiest child you'll ever meet. And when I would put him to bed at night, ever since he was a little, little kid, I would say to him, Moses, who made you, honey? And Moses would look up at me with this big smile and he would say, God made me. And I would say, yeah, that's right. And how did he make you? And Moses would look at me and he'd say, he made me good. And I would say, he sure did. He made you good. Actually, he made you fearfully. He made you wonderfully. He made you perfectly. He knit you together while you were still in a secret place. He made you intrinsically good. And this is so important because Jesus has this lens that sees the makings, the sacred makings of who you already are. Not something he wants to give you, something you already have because God created you good. And before anything else happened, before the brokenness, before the diversion, before the sin, before the secrets, before the shame, you know, in the Bible, we said before Genesis 3, where humanity made these decisions against God, before that, humanity was made in the image of God. And to understand the sacredness at the heart of every human would change everything. If you look at all of the, the, the justice issues or the social problems in our world today, the commodification of human beings, the fastest growing crime on the planet is humans for sale. How does that happen? How do you sell another person? How do you begin to agree with the commodification of human beings? Well, how you do that is you lose the essence of the sacredness of who humans really are. You remember when, when, when Jesus came to earth, actually, his favorite title for himself, this is really interesting, Jesus could have picked any title. We're still figuring out, you know, just the, the, the vast amounts of, of who Jesus really is, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and the creator of the universe. And, you know, co-equal with God, the scripture says, and then he left all of heaven and he came down in the form of a human and he used to introduce himself. His favorite title for himself was the Son of Man. He always say, the Son of Man has come to seek and save. The Son of Man has come. The Son of Man is here. The Son of Man is here. And the Son of Man is literally translated the human one. So Jesus, like any title he could ever be given on the planet, he comes to earth and introduces himself like, hi, I'm Jesus. I'm human. I'm human. You? I'm human. You see, what happens is that when you enter, he enters into a place where he's dealing with the people who've been oppressed, 
for a long, long time, and he's saying, hey, you're not defined by oppression. You're not defined by the external uh, conditions of your life. You're not defined by your wealth, and you're not defined by your poverty. You're defined in my image. You're defined by me. You're defined by sacredness. You're defined by beauty, and Jesus is able to look through all of the barriers into the sacredness of who you really are, and if you could see yourself the way God sees you, and you could see other people the way God sees them, I guarantee you we would live differently. We would treat each other differently. We would lose our suspicions and our fears and our prejudices. We would lose them and we would celebrate the opportunity of our sacredness together. What would it look like if we could see the image of God in each other? It would look different. It would look so, so different. You know, uh, there's a woman named Malala. I don't know if, if you've heard of the story of Malala. She's amazing, Pakistani girl who stood up against the Taliban for the right to be educated. And uh, she was being interviewed by a reporter. The reporter said, like, I don't understand how in the culture you grew up in, which has a problem valuing girls as equal, how you turned out this way. <laughs> like, how did you turn out to be this incredible woman's rights crusader? Like, how did that happen in this context? And she says, oh, it, it was my dad. And the reporter's like, well, tell me more. And she said, well, we have this, like, tradition in my culture that if a baby boy is born, all of the relatives come over with money and, like, gifts, and they throw it in the crib at the celebration. They say, like, celebrate, this baby is a gift from God. But she said, when a baby girl is born, everybody comes over still, but nobody brings any gifts or money. They all just kind of sit around going, bummer, you got a girl. And she said, but my dad, my dad saw everything differently. And she said what he did was, even though he was poor, he saved up all of the money we had. And when the relatives came to visit when I was born, he gave them all of the money. And he said, throw this money in that crib because Malala is a blessing from God. Hebrews 11 has this like list of people who've done the most amazing things for God. It's, it's called the Hall of Faith. It's just like the best of the best. It's like a list of like the greatest in the kingdom of God. Like these people by faith and Abraham by faith and Moses by faith and like all these like great amazing people by faith and there are all of these like incredible exploits they've done. And right in the middle of the chapter, it has the weirdest verse. It says this, and then there was Moses' parents. And I'm like, What? Who are Moses' parents? Like, they're, they're not even in the Bible. Like, all they do is give birth to this, like, baby and then float them down the river, and that's it. You don't hear from them again. That's all they did was float their baby down a river, and a princess finds him, and Miriam, his sister, she's a little bit more involved, and they raise him in the palace, you know, and then Moses becomes his great deliverer. So I'm reading Hebrews 11, and I'm saying, like, what? How did they make it to the Hall of Faith? All these guys have, like, given their lives and, like, done all these things, and then Moses' parents get on the list. What did they do? And I, I look in Hebrews 11, I read, it says, Moses' parents saw that he was no ordinary child. What Moses' parents did was, was see their baby for the sacred calling 
that he had, which is, by the way, has anybody ever seen an ordinary child? I have yet to meet one. Every child I've ever met is extraordinary. Every child I've ever met, you know, I, I visited a friend of mine who had, she came from a very terrible life, just trafficked and exploited, sexually exploited for her whole life, and she was pregnant, giving birth to a baby, and her, uh, the father of the baby was in prison uh, for quite some violent crimes. And uh, when I went to the hospital to visit her, um, I saw two guards outside the room, and I realized the father had gotten a pass from prison to come uh, and visit his newborn child. And I was a little bit afraid, to tell you the truth, uh, for the situation. And I walked into the hospital room, and she was sleeping. The mother and the baby crib beside her was empty. And I could hear this sound, and I realized it was the sound of weeping. I turned around the corner, and I saw this guy in his prison jumpsuit with, like, uh, chains still on his ankles, crouched down in a, almost a fetal position against the wall with this little baby, and he was weeping and weeping and weeping, and he looked up at me, and he said, have you ever seen anything so beautiful? And the truth is, I haven't. I haven't seen anything so beautiful. And that, that thing that happened to that man is that same thing that happens to God every time he looks at you. And every time he looks at everyone, even invisible people, even people with perfect barriered lives, even people who, who don't see it themselves, he sees through the barrier into the sacredness of every human being, including you. God's not mad at you. He's not disappointed with you. He doesn't hope you would just finally one day get it right. He loves you. He values you. He's never seen anyone more beautiful than you. If you believed that for yourself, you could begin to see that in other people, and it would change the way the world works, wouldn't it? So these disciples see this guy. Now, what's really interesting about the story in Acts 3 is they see this guy, but they don't see him just as a beggar. They see him as, this, as a sacred person made in the image of God. They don't see the, the need as this overwhelming, like, oh, how will we meet this need? They see this opportunity for God to do something remarkable through everybody. And this is a really interesting thing because we get so easily paralyzed by the need or by the barrier, we get just thrown off so easy. When every single need or chaos or like weirdness is this great opportunity for God's kindness and sacredness and beauty and love and life to break into the earth. You know, there's th this, this funny thing in there. It says that they saw him by the gate beautiful. You know that commentators, people who study the geography of the temple, people who have, have plans, the architectural design of the temple, cannot find a gate called beautiful. They can't find it physically. They don't know what that means. What they do know is that the word beautiful means flourishing. It means life-giving. It, it, it means life-bearing. And the word gate means opening. What they do know is that that beggar was sitting by an opening for life to flourish. How many times do you think you might have passed a person sitting by a beautiful gate 
on your way to even your normal life? How many opportunities do you think you might have if you saw the world the way Jesus sees the world? If you saw the world and saw people the way Jesus saw people, how many opportunities might you have to speak sacredness, to speak life, to speak possibility into every day? I, I lived in a, in a hood, the downtown east side of Vancouver, a drug-addicted community for many years. And I was being as nice as I could in that community to, to people that didn't deserve it. It was the way I was trying to be like Jesus, you know, like just be kind. And there's this one particular drug dealer that lived on, the, on my block, and I was nice to him, even though his reputation was like fierce. I mean, he was a bad news guy. But I was like, just like smiling, you know, in Jesus' name, take that. You know, I was just like gonna kill him with like little kindnesses every day. And I was being kind like for a long time. And my friend was visiting and she wanted to go on a prayer walk. Uh, on her day off, which is, you know, just so great, isn't it? I wanted to go to Starbucks, but whatever. Uh, she was a guest, so I was like, fine, we'll pray on my day off. And so we're like, we, we go out and, and we pray. Now, she's somebody who's really connected to, uh, to God. Like, she just sees things all the time, like godly things. And I remember we walked out, and she sees this drug dealer, and she goes, oh, I got to pray for him. And I remember in my mind thinking, oh man, she's going to wreck everything. Like I've been being kind to that guy for a whole year, you know what I'm saying? And like she's just going to like mess it up because this is crazy. But she goes right up to this guy and she goes, can I pray or would you like a free word from God? That's what she said. And he looks at her, he goes, oh, I don't know. She said, it's free. <laughs> and he goes, okay, if it's free. So she puts uh, her hand on his shoulder and she, she closes her eyes and she just asks Jesus to show her what he sees. And she says, oh, wow. She says, I see this little boy trapped in a closet. There's like a belt involved. just like a five-year-old kid. And he's crying out in the closet, baby Jesus, help me. Baby Jesus, help me. Baby Jesus, help me. And she says to this drug dealer, does this mean anything to you? And the drug dealer drops to the ground in a fetal position and starts weeping. He says, how could you know that? How could you know that? How could you know that? And my friend says, because Jesus heard you. Because Jesus sees you. Because Jesus knows you. And that ordinary day in that terrible neighborhood turned into an extraordinary opportunity for life, for forgiveness, for sacredness, for relationship, for God's plan for the world to break through on an ordinary day. Because my friend had Jesus' vision. She had eyes that could see past the fear past the barrier and into the sacred heart of one of the hardest guys I've ever seen, just like Jesus can, and saw him, not, not, not on the margins, but at a beautiful gate of opportunity for God to break into this world. If we could see like that, if you could see yourself like that, what a difference we could make in the world, huh? What a difference we could make in the world. Pray with me. God, we are so grateful that when you look at us, 
you don't see our facades, you don't see our barriers, you don't see our sin, you don't see our, our, our shame, you don't see our fear. You see all the way through to sometimes what no one else has ever seen. You see all the way through right into the center of our sacred selves. You see us. And you tell us over and over again that you have never seen anything so beautiful. Would you help us? Would you help us to believe you? Would you help us to receive that word? And that by that word, we would change the way we see everyone else. Would you help us? Give us eyes to see. Some of you here today may still have thought <laughs> that, that God doesn't like you. And today, you're like, what? I'm sacred. I'm beautiful. I'm worthy. I'm loved. And today could be a beautiful gate for you, this opportunity for life, for this connection to Jesus that would bring this newness and that word repentance to change the way you see. It, it, it could change everything in you and it could change everything around you. And if that's you and you're here today and you just want to say, yeah, I want that. I want that connection with Jesus. I want to understand him so I can understand me and I can relate to others in a totally different way. If that's you, everyone, I'm just going to ask you to pray and just close your eyes. But if that's you, I'm going to ask you just to, to lift up your eyes, to, to look at me, to say, I choose to be seen and to see. I choose Jesus. I see you. I see you. I see you. I see you. And God, we're asking with these eyes, these divine eyes, these eyes that see the way you see, that as that begins to impact us, that it would impact the way we see everyone else. And that that vision would be a vision that could change this world. Pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Timberlake Church Podcast. Stay connected with us by visiting TimberlakeChurch.com or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.